can really tell when the Spirit is at work in amidst the lives of a congregation by their friendliness and by their joy and sensitivity to visitors. And as a visitor this morning, I've had a chance to meet the majority of you, not quite all of you. I see some faces I haven't met yet today. Um, but it's been truly a blessing just to meet with you and talk with you very briefly before the service. I'd like to read this morning from uh, Acts chapter 16. We'll actually be reading a little bit further than um, indicated in the bulletin. We'll be reading to the end of the chapter uh, to verse 40. This is Paul speaking. He's just begun his second missionary journey. Oh, sorry, it's Luke speaking. Luke tells for us, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you, in the name of Jesus Christ, to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to, killing himself, was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. When he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Well, it doesn't take a genius to look at the calendar and see that we're into a new year. 
I don't know what 2015 was like for you. For me, it was an up and down year. I began 2015 returning to school, excited about what the year would bring. And over the course of the year, different things happened. I lost some loved ones, had some difficult times in the year. But through and amidst the difficulties, I can look back at 2015 and say it was a good year, not necessarily because of the things that happened to me, but because in 2015, I grew stronger in my love for Christ. As we enter into 2016, it's hard to know what this year will bring with it. Perhaps it'll bring good things. Perhaps there'll be marriages and births. Perhaps there'll be graduations or other things to be excited about. Perhaps if you root for a certain football team, there may be a national championship. Who knows? Who knows? God knows. So 2016 could be a good year. But 2016 could be a bad year. Uh, it's an election year, I believe. Am I, not, am I right? Uh, with election years, there come good things and bad things. Changes of the regime can be good, and sometimes they can be bad. So 2016 might not be an exciting year for you, but it may. So when considering preaching and what, what I should talk about and how we should attack this, this new coming year, I can't promise that 2016 will be a good year. Neither can I particularly promise that it'll be a bad year. But given the few years of experience I've had in life, I can promise that there will be ups and there will be downs. There will be good things in the year to come. There'll be moments of inexpressible joy and excitement and beauty. There'll be moments of um, deep hurt, deep pain, deep frustration. And that might just be after Alabama plays in the national championship. I don't, I don't, I don't know. So as I look at examples in scripture of how to handle the ups and downs of, uh, of life, I look at someone like the Apostle Paul, and I see the experiences that he bore. With most of us remember Paul's story. He was a man that uh, grew up. He was born in the city of Tarsus, which was a very cosmopolitan city. He was a Jew living in a uh, Roman city with a very strong Greek culture and Greek presence. And so he was a multicultural man. He was a very educated man. Studied under Gamaliel, who was a very well-known and respected teacher in his day and age, and he was advancing up in the ranks of the of the Pharisees. Um, he was doing what he felt at the time to be very, very important in curbing what he perceived at the time as a young heresy that was threatening Judaism, that was threatening the truth, and so he was responsible in part for the persecution of Christians. But one day, while heading to Damascus to find some more Christians there, the Lord encountered him powerfully and revealed himself. Uh, Jesus Christ revealed himself to be the one who he was persecuting. And this broke Paul's heart. And so the series of ups and downs began, where he thought as a young man that he would be growing as a prominent uh, Pharisee and as a prominent scholar of the law. Now the Lord was calling him to take the gospel to men and women who were Gentiles, men and women before that he never would have considered worth or worthy of hearing the truth of, of, of the God of the Old Testament. Now this was the audience to whom he was called to declare the power of the gospel. And so his life would take out on this trajectory of ups and downs, ups when he was preaching the gospel and when he was seeing men and women come to faith, ups when he was seeing households baptized and dedicated ups when he was able to pass off his ministry to other young leaders, men like Timothy or men like John Mark or Titus, who could take the gospel and continue to advance it in the congregations that he was founding. But Paul also saw many downs in his life. He was beaten many, many times in many different ways. Oftentimes he was abandoned, left alone in prison. Uh, he was imprisoned. 
he was alienated from his countrymen, from Jews. And so Paul saw many ups, but Paul also saw many downs. And as we consider this passage, we see that theme continuing. Paul here is beginning uh, what is called the uh, second missionary journey of his life. Um, Paul first begins his first missionary journey, making a tour around uh, modern-day Turkey. In his second missionary journey, he begins to transition a little bit more into Greece. In Acts, um, earlier in Acts chapter 16, Paul, while originally heading north there in Asia Minor, felt a call by the Lord to not continue his journey north and east, but to turn westward to the continent of Greece. And so with this, he moves and he turns and he starts entering into Greece. And with it, he enters into the town of Philippi. While he's in Philippi, he meets a woman named Lydia. And she is there working and and, um, uh, worshiping in a place of prayer. There wasn't a congregation large enough of Jews in Philippi for there to be a synagogue. But there were enough for there to be a place of prayer. And it's here in this place of prayer that Paul begins his ministry, and he meets this woman named Lydia, who was a dealer in purple dyes. It means that she was dealing with um, a product that, that purple dyes were um, very, very expensive to acquire. Cloth that was dyed in purple was very expensive and was often worn by the upper echelons of society. And so Lydia was dealing in very high-priced items. As a result, she and her household were probably very, very wealthy. And Lydia is amidst the first converts of um, the congregation there in Philippi. Well, as we look at the passage and as we approach our text this morning, I'd like to ask this question. How does Paul respond amidst the ups and downs of his ministry, early ministry here in Philippi? This passage, all these events that we've been talking about here when we read our scripture passage this morning, they occur within roughly a 24-hour period. Paul is preaching and teaching in Philippi. He's preaching for several days. While he's there, he encounters this girl, this young woman, who is given a spirit of divination. She's possessed by a spirit that gives particular insight into the events of the future. Paul is annoyed with this because even though she's declaring and preaching, saying things that are true, it seems that she's doing it in a disruptive manner that is preventing Paul from able, being able to advance the gospel and preach the gospel in the way that he wants. And so though facing the ups of preaching the gospel, there's this uh, irritant of a demon that is um, threatening his ministry. So Paul... Um, uh, calls the demon to be cast out from the young girl. And in doing so, um, the owners of the girl see that what was once a profitable source of income. You can imagine, much like today, people were very, very interested in what the future is going to hold, what will be coming up down the road. Particular Greeks and Romans were very, very interested in what was going to be happening in the future. And so this young girl was a source of profit for those uh, owners, the men and women who owned her. With her being, with the demon being expelled, with it her gift is parted from her as well. So how does how does Paul respond amidst the ups and downs of this life in this in this day period of his life? Well, the first thing that he does is he doesn't weaken or waver amidst opposition in his calling. 
When I speak of weakening, I'm talking about shrinking back from the calling that he has. Paul knows that he was called by God to advance the gospel uh, to the Gentiles. In the midst of opposition, it could have been very easy for him to to weaken and shrink back from what God had called him to do. He could say, no, um, I I know that I'm called to proclaim the gospel to Gentiles, but I'm not going to travel everywhere. I'm just going to go and stay where it's safe for me to preach the gospel. I'm going to stay closer to Israel where I'm comfortable and where I'm familiar, and I'm going to do the ministry here. Paul doesn't do that in the midst of the trials that are given to him. In fact, quite the opposite. He boldly goes out and is faithful to what God has called him to do. The second thing that he doesn't do, he doesn't waver amidst opposition to the gospel. When I talk about wavering, we have this tendency when we run into difficulty, either we shrink back, we kind of huddle into our own little corners, or perhaps we move direction. You know, we say rather than pursuing whatever goal I had this way, I'm going to move to something else. You know, I think of a time that I was asked, well, I took on the endeavor of building a retaining wall for my mother. There was a little hill in the backyard that was just an eyesore, and I thought, you know, a little retaining wall with some tears would make it a very nice little garden area for her. And so I took on the task of building some retaining walls with these little little blocks. Well, as happens when we start new projects, I got about halfway through and realized this project was a little more daunting for me than I thought. I thought I had the skill and ability to create the wall, and uh, I was overwhelmed by the time that it was going to take to finish these two walls that I had uh, planned on building. And so rather than continue with that course, I thought, well, maybe I'll do something else, something I can handle. I can handle doing the dishes. I can handle cleaning for mom. Uh, But lo and behold, the wall was not building. And so I was taking a different pathway. Rather than pursuing building the wall that I had set out to do, I decided, well, maybe I'll do other things I can manage. Eventually, the walls got built after no small uh, encouragement from my mother to finish the project that I told her I would start, and things came out well. But we can have that tendency in the midst of opposition to change paths, to change directions in the midst of adversity. And Paul doesn't do this. When we look at our passage, there are several points of opposition that Paul was facing at this time in his life. Firstly, Paul felt called to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. In earlier in our passage in Acts 16, Paul is prevented by the Holy Spirit uh, from him to continue his mission in Asia. We don't know what the obstacles are, all were directly, but uh, the calling for Paul or the sense of calling that Paul had to go north and to go east was curbed by the Lord. Doors were closed. Things stopped from Paul feeling that he could continue that part of his ministry. And so there was that sense of opposition from Christ, from the Holy Spirit, that this wasn't what, this wasn't the direction that, Paul, that God wanted him to go at. Secondly, Paul also faced demonic opposition from this little, the spirit that was affecting the little girl. There was a demon that, uh, in possessing this little child, was causing difficulty for Paul to present the gospel. Beyond that, Paul is also facing social and political opposition. When Paul goes, when after this little girl's spirit is expelled from her, the local, the owners take Paul to court. And this, this court case, this uh, judicial scene is... Uh, 
not one that really reflects the best of judicial process. False accusations are given against him. Um, his accusers pull the race card. They say these men are Jews, kind of displaying an ethnic prejudice against them. They utter lies against them, saying that these men are disturbing our city. They, Paul and Silas weren't really disturbing the city. The only people that they were disturbing were the owners of this little girl. So they were embellishing and telling lies before the magistrates. They were also, Paul's gospel was misrepresented by the owners of this little girl, uh, they were claiming that Paul and Silas were advocating customs that were not lawful for Romans. And we know that's just absolutely not true. The gospel in nowhere is, would it declare anything that would have been unnecessarily unlawful for a Roman to practice. And so these false accusations were being uh, given and were being presented against Paul. And he was facing opposition socially and politically. As a result, this corrupt monkey trial, they weren't really interested in truth. The judges weren't interested in the truth of the situation. They were merely wanting to pacify the moment as quickly as possible. And as a result, Paul and Silas found themselves thrown in prison. So not only were they facing opposition from demons or facing opposition politically, they were also facing um, natural opposition. I mean, could you imagine being in a circumstance where you feel that God has called you to preach the gospel, so you're preaching the gospel. As a result of it, you pray, and there's a demon that's expelled. These seems to be good, good movings, good movings of the Spirit, good workings of the Lord in your life and in your ministry. And all of a sudden, you're brought uh, before a judge and before a court, falsely accused, you're thrown in prison, you find yourselves in the deepest, most remote parts of the prison, uh, shackled in chains, isolated with the worst of thieves, thinking, God, <laughs> this isn't exactly what I had in mind or what I thought was you were going to provide for me when you called me into ministry. And uh, amidst all of that, then they find themselves in the midst of some natural opposition. There's an earthquake now, fortunately, they survived the earthquake, but this could have been disastrous for them. So they find themselves imprisoned, they've been beaten, they've been falsely accused. Now there's an earthquake, a natural disaster going on. These are the kind of difficulties that Paul is facing here in the passage. But uh, despite these difficulties that he's facing, Paul doesn't weaken or waver amidst his adversity. In fact, quite the opposite. We find... Sorry. Hmm. I only got two pages of my notes. We, <laughs> we find that despite that, what happens is Paul actually finds himself in a different kind of position. He finds himself in a position of worship. And perhaps the most fascinating part of the whole story, in my opinion, is this circumstance where Paul and Silas, despite the opposition that they're facing, they find themselves singing and praising and singing hymns to God. I don't know if you've ever been in the kind of difficulty where things are pressing and weighing on you, and you found the reality that music can do wonderful things for our hearts and for our souls. When I was a younger boy, my family and I were on a small vacation trip, and we were in a... Um, we were in this little um, hut, I guess is what you call it. Um, and the base, the, the foundation 
of the little cottage that we were staying in was pretty small, and then the outer portions were wider. It was kind of an aesthetic design. And we were there just enjoying our time and fellowship with one another. And that evening, um, unbeknownst to us, we weren't watching TV. We had agreed to cut off the television and cut all the technology away from ourselves so we could enjoy our time as a family, which can be a good idea, but it can be a bad idea when there's a weather threat of multiple tornadoes coming into that little town that you're living in. We didn't know. And so all of a sudden, uh, we hear the alarms go off. We don't really know what to do. Given the small foundation, the winds start blowing, and our cottage starts rocking back and forward. So we go and climb into a little closet that's kind of in the central part of the house, knowing that if the sides fall off, at least hopefully the centerpiece will stay. And amidst the stress and difficulty of the circumstance, Mom suggests, why don't we start singing hymns? And we did. And despite the house shaking and our dog, our little dog barking, we found that singing hymns in the midst of difficulty and uh, stress provided for us an opportunity to turn our eyes away from the oppression that was around us and lift our eyes back to things that are really important, to the goodness of God, to the wonder of God, to what he has done for us in our lives. And Paul and Silas do this in the midst of the difficulty that they are experiencing. Rather than be consumed by the frustration and stress, they decide in this moment that they will turn their eyes to Christ, and they will do so by singing songs. And as a result of this, this has a effect on those who are around them. And this is the second thing that we saw see Paul doing. He's not weakening or wavering in his faith, but in everything that he's doing, he's planting seeds of the gospel. Firstly, he's doing so by singing these songs in spiritual, in spiritual hymns. The second thing that he's doing is when he's given an opportunity to exploit the weaknesses or circumstances of those around him, he doesn't do that. The jailer being a man of importance, if any one of the prisoners would escape, he and his life would be forfeit. He would probably be beaten and tortured and abused, and as a result of that, he would eventually lose his life. Paul is aware of this. Uh, Paul had been in prison before. He was a man of his day. He knew the customs and the penalties for those who were around him. And he knew when he looked at the Philippian jailer, he looked at him not just as a man who was over him and responsible for him, but also he saw him as a person. He saw him as a man whom um, God could be calling to himself. And so he doesn't exploit the opportunity, neither he or Silas exploit the opportunity that they have when their bonds are broken and when the shackles come free and when the bars are released from their holdings. They don't flee and escape like they could have. They would have been within their rights to. They were falsely accused. They were falsely imprisoned. Uh, it wouldn't have necessarily been wrong for them to flee. But if they had fled, it would have cost their jailer his life. And Paul is sensitive to that. So rather than fleeing like they could have, instead they stay put, knowing that they will remain in custody, but it will preserve the life of the Philippian jailer. And what happens as a result of this? The jailer is powerfully touched by Paul and Silas not taking that opportunity to flee. The jailer says, what must I do to be saved? And there's an irony here. The term that he's using for saved is 
is the one that was, it would be synonymous for someone to be released from prison. And so there's an irony here that Paul and Silas are the ones that are imprisoned, and yet the jailer is the one who is asking, what must I do to be free from the bonds of slavery? An irony. Do you see it? Do you see it? And so what happens in planting the seeds of the gospel by worshiping through the midst of the adversity, also by not exploiting the weaknesses of others, the Philippian jailer is touched by the power of the gospel in the lives of Paul and Silas. And he asks, what must he do to be saved? As a result of that, we're familiar with the story. It's a well-told story. He and his family come to a saving trust of Jesus Christ. And this leads to a third way that Paul is not exploiting, or that Paul is planting seeds of the gospel. He has worshipped through the midst of adversity. He has also not exploited the weaknesses of those who are around him. And thirdly, he's also shown, he shows a sensitivity to injustice that's around him. Paul and Silas were falsely accused. They weren't really given their fair due or hearing in the trial. There was a mob scene, and the justices who were presiding, the judges who were presiding over their case, um, tried to quickly just deal with the situation and pacify the crowd. In the midst of it, those judges didn't do their fair diligence in properly seeking out Paul and Silas's uh, take on the circumstances. Had they done that, the uh, reality of Paul and Silas's citizenship as Roman citizens would have come to the forefront, and the whole escapade would have been would have been avoided. And so when Paul and Silas are granted release from prison, the judges try to quietly put it away. And Paul says, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not going to let you get away with not publicly being recognized as being judges who haven't done their due diligence in seeking out the truth in regards to my case. Paul's not being vindictive here. He's not trying to... um, puff himself up. We see that Paul's beaten multiple times, and Paul isn't looking for um, justification in the midst of it. It seems like what Paul's intention here is for the judges and the community to know that an injustice was done. It was very, very important to him. And we live in a world today where there is just injustice um, all around us, from uh, men and women not getting their fair due, from uh, poverty and circumstances along those lines. The church has been placed in a wonderful position for us to meet the needs of those who are truly, truly in need, not just financially, uh, but emotionally and spiritually as well. We have the truth of the gospel and the love of Christ that is motivating us and compelling us. And so as a result, it's important for us this year that we keep in mind through the midst of the adversities to not lose sight of the importance of looking after those who are around us and of making sure that those who God draws near to us in our circumstances still see the light of the gospel despite the injustices around us. So Paul doesn't weaken or waver in his circumstances. He worships through the midst of adversity. He also... Um, is careful to not exploit the weaknesses of others. And then lastly, when injustice presents itself, Paul takes a stand against injustice. Well, there's a last thing that Paul does in the midst of the ups and downs of his life, and that is he returns to um, prioritizing and enjoying fellowship with believers. Our passage ends with him returning to the household of Lydia 
before he departs from the city. And one of the most wonderful things about the Christian life is the nature of Christian fellowship. Perhaps you've experienced it with men and women here in this church. Perhaps you've experienced it other places as well. In my life, through the midst of the ups and downs, the consistency of brothers and sisters in Christ who know me, who know the Lord, who are able to speak into my life when I have done wrong, uh, who are able to speak into my life when I'm just being unnecessarily bitter and irritating, um, those relationships are the ones that I treasure the most, the ones that are able to pick me up when I'm discouraged. I think of the blessing of one of my friends, who his, his name is Adam. Uh, he's a minister in a different state now. Uh, it didn't seem like we really had much of anything in common. Uh, almost comically so. We were different dimensions. We had different interests. And, uh, but the Lord placed him just two doors down from me when I was uh, living in New England in college or in, in early seminary. And uh, Adam, early on in our relationship, actually irritated the daylights out of me. Uh, I don't think he knew it. He wasn't aware of it. But the one thing that we had in common was our love for Jesus Christ. Adam was a voice when I was um, wrong. He could call me on my weaknesses. When he was hurting, uh, we could nurture one another. When I was hurting, we could nurture one another. And despite on paper not having much in common at all, when we got together, the one thing that we shared in common was a saving knowledge of Christ, a love for the gospel, and a desire to see the Lord work his way in our lives and in our ministries. Adam became one of my best friends. He was a great encouragement to me in the midst of discouragement, in the midst of frustration of academic life in your early 20s, and I'm very, very grateful for him. I hope for each of you that you have relationships that you can um, be yourself in, that you can be open both to criticism when necessary and also open to encouragement, but not just where you're always the one that's receiving the criticism or the encouragement, but relationships where you're able to encourage, where you're able to uh, lovingly call your brothers and sisters on their shortcomings. This is the beauty of Christian fellowship, friends, that the Lord has called us to himself, that he has forgiven us of our sins and our trespasses, and that he has put us in the midst of other men and women who are hurting and who are in need of the continual reminder of the power of the gospel to cleanse us, to grow us, to mature us into the men and women that God is calling us to be. And so the last thing that Paul does is he returns to these kind of relationships there in Philippi when he returns to meet with Lydia and their household. It had been a crazy day for him. He began his day uh, preaching the gospel, casting out a demon. He found himself before a corrupt jury and a corrupt court, falsely imprisoned. Yet in the midst of that imprisonment, he and, he and Silas sung and as a result of their singing and failure to exploit the opportunity to flee their captives, the jailer came, the Philippian jailer came to know Christ. I can't imagine the conversation that they had there uh, in Lydia's house that evening. So these are the things, some of the things that we see Paul doing in the midst of the ups and downs of life. In the good times and the bad times, we see that Paul is prioritizing the work of the gospel in his life. He's doing so by not weakening or wavering amidst the difficulties that he's experiencing. Uh, he does so 
by worshiping through the midst of adversity. He does so by not exploiting the weaknesses of those who are around him, by calling injustice injustice when the time is right, and also by prioritizing Christian fellowship in the midst of adversity. Friends, I can't promise that this year is going to be a good year. I can't promise that it's going to be a bad year. But I can promise you that there have been patterns set in place in Scripture that we can follow in the midst of the adversity, that we won't lose hope or lose sight of the calling that God has called us to in the midst of troubles, that we won't be disheartened amidst things that could uh, take our joy from us, but that we might be encouraged and uplifted. And so I hope, friends, that over the course of this year, whatever it is that God brings in your life, that you will draw near to the Lord, that you will draw near to Scripture, and that in doing so, that you'll also prioritize Christian fellowship. And as a result of it, whatever 2016 may bring, I hope that this year will be a good year for you, one in which you see the glory of Christ revealed in you, one in which you are strengthened and encouraged, where you grow more and more in love with Christ, where you are built up more into the image of him who has called you, and hopefully in doing so, that those who are around you will see the light of the gospel in you. It's going to be a good year, friends. It might not be an easy year. It might be a difficult year. But I hope that this is another year where the gospel goes forward in the world, and especially here in this church family in the midst of Pell City. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the work of Paul and the work of Silas. We thank you for their example, and we thank you for Scripture, Lord, as it has preserved their life and ministry for us. Lord, we ask for your blessing upon us this day and this week. Father, we ask that we will continue to grow in love with you over the course of this coming year. And Lord, we ask that everything we do, whether it be in word or in deed, will be done to your name and to the glory of your name. In your name we pray. Amen.